community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Dean's and to Nathan's and to everyone who may have greeted you this morning. My name is Aaron, one of the pastors here at Lake Forest, and boy, it is a joy to share a Sunday morning with you all. I could not be more proud, y'all. I, I went to bed Sunday night, last Sunday, after Wessex service, and my heart was just full. I, I mean, it was just, it was like spilling over kind of full. You know, when you're going to bed and you just, you're beaming, smile, cheek to cheek. That's how I felt. I just could not be more proud of you, of us as a church, uh, taking a Sunday to go out and serve. That was just incredible. Uh, and uh, it's a joy, it's a joy to get to be a pastor uh, to such an awesome church as you guys uh, so my thank you as well. My thank you as well. Well, uh, today we start a new series, but I want to start with a question. You ready for the question? Here's a question. Has anyone, and there's going to be a show of hands, so get ready, get, get ready. Has anyone here ever had a job that they didn't like? Anybody ever have a job here? Okay, now is my staff raising their hands? Like, uh, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> Researchers at the University of Aberdeen found that the, most, uh, the single most important factor in life satisfaction and overall well-being was job satisfaction. That's the single greatest predictor. How you feel about your work turns out to be a bigger predictor of life satisfaction than how you feel about your family, your marriage, your kids, your leisure time, your health, your finances, or your social life. What's more, there's a Gallup study out a couple years ago in 2013 of about 250,000 people, and they found this that only about 30% of employees are actually engaged in or inspired in their work, meaning the other 70% of us have just entirely checked out, haven't we? We're not engaged at all. What's more is that there has been a dramatic increase in stress-related illnesses for people who have high-speed jobs with tight deadlines and demanding workloads, which is about the only kind of job that's actually out there anymore. People who are happy in their work tend to be happy in their lives, and people who are miserable in their work tend to be miserable in their lives. In fact, one study cited by a guy named John Maxwell found that outside of your genetics, job satisfaction is the number one predictor of how long you will live. Now that you know that, how many of you expect to die any moment? Your work, your work is an incredibly important part of your life. It is. And your work is an incredibly important thing to God. And so today we're starting a new series called, So What Do You Do? And it's all about our work life, all about our God life. And what do these two things actually have to do with each other? And whether your work is done in an office or in a warehouse, or in a field, or maybe you're a student and your work is done in the classroom, or you're a parent and your work is done in the home, we all have work to do. Work that we have been called to. And work that, and what does God think about this work? Does the kind of work I do really matter? And how can I know if I'm really doing the work I'm supposed to be doing? 
These are some of the questions we're going to look at in this series. And today I want to start by just kind of laying a foundation, a foundation. Uh, Today I want to try to answer this one simple question as we get started. And the question is this, why work? Why do we work in the first place? I was thinking about my kind of working title for this series. Uh, My working title for this is uh, making our TGIFs into TGIMs. Do you get it? What if, what if we could feel the same way about Mondays that we do about Fridays? That's kind of the active question we're going to consider. And today I want to get us started with this foundational question, why do we work? As it turns out, as it turns out, work was God's idea to begin with. And so we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about this. In fact, I'm going to answer this question in four parts. There are four parts to my answer to this question today. Why work? And it begins here. You see, God invented Mondays. From the very beginning of scripture, we see that the one true God is not a couch potato, nor did he create a couch potato world, but rather God himself is a God who works. Genesis 1 opens this way. In the beginning, God created. God's at work. He created the heavens and the earth. Here in the opening words of the Bible, we are introduced to a God who is a thoughtful and creative worker. And for the entire first chapter of the Bible, we see God doing his work. But then chapter 2 opens with these words. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. In other words, here's the big idea to begin with. The first purpose, excuse me, the first person in the Bible to work is God himself. From the very beginning, God worked. Now, this idea of a God who works is kind of a strange and unique concept in the ancient world. Other religions in the ancient world actually taught that their gods, whoever they were, created human beings to work for them for the gods, to offer them food so that the gods could sleep and party. That's kind of what gods did in the ancient world, apparently. Uh, Zeus, he didn't have a job, right? Uh, Baal, he didn't have a job. Molech, he didn't have a job. Only Yahweh, the God of Israel, had a job. The God of Israel was the only God in the ancient world who worked. And this had huge implications for Israel, God's people. And it has huge implications for us today. One scholar describes it this way. He says, Israel, that's God's people in the Old Testament. Israel was virtually the only ancient people who viewed work as dignifying rather than demeaning. In ancient Greece, tradespeople, folks who practiced a trade, were actually slaves. They were, there were actually Greek cities that passed laws that prohibited citizens from working. Work was to be done by slaves by women and by non-citizens. By contrast, Israel, in the Talmud, which is a group of Jewish writings, it is said, he who does not teach his son a trade is as if he teaches him robbery. Such was the value of work in Israel. Israel loved work. They had a God who worked. Israel loved trades. And some of you will know this. Actually, many of the important characters in the scriptures are known for their trades, Uh, Peter, he was a fisherman, right? Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, was a tent maker. Uh, Jesus himself 
Jesus himself was a carpenter, and this is not an accident. They loved work because they understood that the God of Israel is a God who works. Now, I've been using this word work a lot, and I haven't given us a definition yet, have I? Let me give us a definition. What do we mean when we say work? What is work? Well, if we boiled all work down to the simplest, most generic explanation, we might describe it this way. Work is any expenditure of energy for the creation of value. Anytime you expend energy to create value and good in the world and or for others, you are doing work. And the truth is, we can all do this, can't we? Whether you're a student or a a parent or an employee or a boss, we all expend energy for the creation of value. And this, this is why Israel loved work. Because they understood this great mystery. That it wasn't just that God works, but that somehow, in the most mysterious way possible, we have been invited into his work with him. We were created to work too. Which brings me to the second part of our answer. The first part of why we work is because God works. The second part of the answer to the question why work is because we were created for work. Look at how Genesis goes on to describe this later on in that first chapter. Let's pick up with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, circle, circle, underline, highlight, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Have lots of babies. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. All right, two very important things we learn from this passage. First, God loves bass fishing and duck hunting. No, I'm kidding. Look at what he says. He probably does like bass fishing, but look at what he says here, right? First, We are created in his image. What does that mean? Well, in some way, we all bear a resemblance to God. And you might might not know this, but you already kind of know what this means. You know how we say when a child looks like her father or her mother, we say she is the spitting image of her mom? I have no idea what spit has to do with that saying, but but she, she bears her mother's image. And in the same way, we bear our maker's image. We were made to reflect the image of God. Now, why does the author of Genesis say we were made in his image? Why? So that we can help in the work God is doing. Do you see that? We were made in God's image, a God who works, so that we can join with him in what he is doing. So let's come back to our question. Why do we work? Now, had I started this sermon without giving you the Bible up front, you probably would have answered that question with some version of the paycheck answer, right? 
We probably would say, well, you know what, Aaron, I work because, you know, I got a lot of bills. I got some financial obligations. I got kids and there's college and I've already sold one of my kidneys for the first college tuition. I only have one left. I have a friend who actually says that this, this answer to the question is actually what the seven dwarves were singing about when they first sang this. You know how this song goes? I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. Do, 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 I owe. I owe, I owe, I owe. Some of you know this song. You sing it real? Okay, I get this. Yes. A lot of us, that, that's kind of our intuitive answer to why we work, right? But the author of Genesis suggests an entirely different response. While we can all attest to the high cost of living in a modern society, financial transaction is not the primary reason we work, at least not according to the Scriptures. The fundamental reason we work, according to Genesis 1, is because we are created in the image of a God who works. We work because we were created to work, to bring value and good out of the gifts, energy, and resources he has given us. Now, i got to admit, this can be a little bit counterintuitive for us in our society today. We have been taught to believe that our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate satisfaction is not found in creating value, not found in doing work. Our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate happiness is found in what? Escaping from work, right? Not having to work. That's where real life is found. We don't celebrate Mondays. We celebrate Fridays. We even name our restaurants after them, right? TGIF. Are they actually open? What do you do when you go there on Thursday? Is it like, I, anyway, so we, we celebrate Fridays. Uh, the great social critics of the 80s, Loverboy, sang a song about how everybody is working for the weekend. That's what we live for, right? And if your boss requires you to work on Saturday or Sunday, you might just quote Johnny Paycheck and sing, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more, right? We've come to believe that our deepest satisfaction, our deepest happiness is found in getting as far away from work as possible. Actually, one of the most insightful portraits of this idea, uh, I, I just love this, comes comes from the Pixar animated film, WALL-E. How many of y'all have seen this? How many of y'all have seen WALL-E? Okay, you remember? Here, we've got some footage here. I, I just love WALL-E. Uh, in WALL-E, uh, the human beings have, have left the earth, which they've already kind of just messed up, right? The earth is in need of a lot of work. And so they leave earth in the hands of some hardworking robots. They're going to clean it up, do all the work, fix it up, while the human beings escape on this uh, carnival cruise line-like spaceship, right? Now, if you remember, uh, their lives on this spaceship consist of cruising around on floating chairs, staring at screens, and drinking from giant adult-sized sippy cups. That's kind of what bliss is all about. As a result, the humans have become self-indulgent, baby blob-like bored couch potatoes, as one author puts it. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, you know what's so fascinating about this? Meanwhile, Wally and his partner get this. Do you remember the partner? Eve. Ooh, interesting. Wally and Eve are left back in the garden on earth to do the work of bringing good out of the mess that is there. And while eventually Wally reaches 
the, uh, reaches the spaceship and you know, he has this kind of experience where he, he comes in contact with the humans and, and we with Wally are kind of looking at these blob-like creatures and we, we have this realization that Wally suddenly has which is, wait a minute, is this what humanity was really created for? Meanwhile, the most human-like characters in the whole story are these two robots in the garden doing work. Y'all, there is Bible all up in this film. Holy cow, Disney. Now, at this point, some of y'all are thinking, some of y'all are thinking, because you're smart. Some of y'all are like real smart Bible people. You're thinking, well, wait a second, Aaron. Doesn't it say in the Bible that work is actually part of God's curse? I mean, isn't that really where work comes from? And you would be right to a point. Genesis 3.17 says that we must toil if we are going to eat. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week in a message I'm calling When Work Feels Like a Four-Letter Word. You will not want to miss that one, I promise. But did you know that, this, that before the curse, before there is toil, before there is sin, there is another problem in God's creation? In fact, the very first problem in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 2. And guess whose problem it is? It's God's problem. Genesis 1 and 2 say that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sun, moon, and stars, the animals, the birds, the fish, and barbecue, and it was all good. And then we reach chapter 2, and we come to verse 5, and the strangest thing is said. There's no sin yet. There's no problem. But God has a problem. Look at what it says there in verse 5. He says, but... There was no one to work the ground. And what the writer of Genesis is doing here is raising for us this kind of tension, this kind of question. He's highlighting the incompleteness of creation. You've got a universe with billions and gazillions of stars and galaxies. You've got this incredible planet. You've got all these animals, birds, and beauty And yet, something is missing. Namely, someone to share in the work of creation with God. That's his problem. Sin hasn't even shown up yet. So what did God do? Well, a few verses later, he tells us. Verse 15 says this. So, the Lord God took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Isn't that interesting? Before sin, before death, before anything of bad entered the world, God had an assignment for humanity. We were to work it and to keep it. Now, this idea of keeping is, is simply means to protect or to preserve, and that's what we're to do with God's creation. We're to protect it and to preserve it. But the word he uses here for work is really specific. It's the Hebrew word avodah, or as one of my children said, avocado, but it's close enough. Avodah, avodah. Avodah can mean work, it can mean service, or it can mean craftsmanship. And it appears all over the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 1, it's used to describe the physical labor that the Israelites exert when they're making bricks in Egypt. In Exodus 35, it's used to describe the artists and the architects who design and build the tabernacle where God will be worshipped. And in 1 Chronicles 4, it's used to describe the fine needlework of linen workers creating beautiful 
tapestries. But perhaps the most surprising use of this word is when it is used later in that same book to describe leading corporate worship and praise of God that is done by the priests. The priests do the same work as the artisans, the brickmakers, and the builders. For the biblical writers, work and worship are intimately connected. According to the scriptures, work is actually an act of worship. You know, it's kind of funny how we think about this in our culture. I don't know if this is how you think, but I know some people tend to, we tend to compartmentalize things, right? God and worship, that's something we do for an hour on Sundays at least once a month. That was a joke. That was, a, that was bad. I'm sorry. Okay, too, too close to home, too close to home. We, uh, we tend to compartmentalize. That, that's something that happens on Sundays. Uh, and then work and all that other stuff is what happens on Mondays, right? We even say things like, well, I'm going to church or I'm going to work, which, of course, is a kind of misnomer because in our days, work goes to us. We don't go to work, right? Thanks to cell phones, you're out on the boat, it's a Saturday, you're having a good time, and work just shows right up, uninvited, right? That's just how work is in our world. But in a positive way, in a positive way, what if we are to think about worship not as something confined to an hour on Sunday or a moment every morning during a quiet time? What if worship, like work, is to be a part of every moment of our day? One of my favorite stories about this idea comes from the building of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Has anyone ever been to St. Paul's Cathedral in London? It is incredible. St. Paul's Cathedral, you've got to see it. Uh, These old cathedrals were, were ornate and beautiful, and they took years and years, sometimes decades, to build. It was slow and arduous work at times, and it required great precision and craftsmanship. And sometimes the people who worked on these buildings, they didn't even live to see the building completed. Well, as legend has it, one day, three stonemasons were working side by side on St. Paul's Cathedral when a visitor came to see what they were doing. The visitor asked the first stonemason, they said, so what are you doing? And he replied, I'm cutting stone. Duh. Then the visitor turned to the second mason and asked, okay, so what are you doing? And the second uh, stonemason somewhat bitterly said, well, I'm making a living, or at least trying to. Finally, the visitor turned to the third mason and asked, sir, what are you doing? He paused for a moment and said, me? I'm building a cathedral for God and his people. What a difference a little perspective can make. You see, what this third person understood was that his work was not simply cutting and laying stone. His work was not simply earning a paycheck. His work was an act of worship. And I just wonder how this same perspective shift might change the way we work if we were to view our work as an act of worship. What if you were able to see your work, your avodah, as an act of worship? So let me ask you to reflect for a minute. If somebody came up to you today, or perhaps even better tomorrow, in the middle of your work, and say to you, so, 
What do you do? How would you answer that question? What if moms, young moms, you're you're doing work, right? Like 24-7, 360 billion days a year. Moms, what if moms, young ones underfoot, what if, if instead of answering, well, what do I do? I change diapers and I make meals and I clean up messes and that's just for my husband. I also, you know, <laughs> that was low hanging fruit, but I had to go for that one. True in my house. What if instead you answered, I nurture, protect, and care for little souls that are made in the image of Almighty God? How would that change the work you do? Or teachers, how about teachers? How many teachers in the room? Come on, teachers, show hands, be proud. Yes, teachers, thank you. All right, teachers, how about teachers? What if instead of grading papers and prepping lessons, you were to say, I'm shaping and developing the minds of the next generation of God's people? How would that change? Or how about bankers? Oh, bankers, you guys are the best. You aren't just filling in spreadsheets and balancing budgets. You are bringing order and beauty out of chaos. How many of you know that a well-designed Excel spreadsheet with numbers that actually match at the bottom is proof that there is a God? That's right. (laughs) Yes. Bankers. Okay, students, students, let's keep going. You're not just doing homework. You're developing the talents and gifts that God has given you for the benefit of others in this world. Or mechanics. You're saving a pastor's life. You're providing safe and reliable transportation for others so they can do the work they are called to do. Business owners, you are helping create livelihoods for families that otherwise would not have jobs if it were not for your business. What if, what if the work you do actually matters? What if your work is an act of worship? And whenever you do your work with excellence and integrity and love, you bring glory to God. Why? Because you bear his image. You reflect the image of a God who works. It is an act of worship. I have to admit, the church has not always been good on this one, have we? We, we, We've kind of accidentally done a bad job with this. Sometimes we've often elevated certain jobs above others. We give certain jobs, we say, oh, those are meaningful. And then these other ones we kind of demean a little bit. As if being a priest is more important than being a plumber. Or being a missionary is more important than being a mother. Or that some work is Christian work while other work is secular. But this could not be further from the truth. I love how Dorothy Sayers, the great 19th century author, writes about this. She says, why work? She says, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The only Christian work is good work well done. Now, Dorothy's not being novel here. She's not being original. All she's doing is articulating the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Colossians that we have as part of our scriptures. Listen to how Paul puts this idea. He says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see, Paul is calling us to something quite profound here. Something that one author calls working for an audience of one. It's the noblest of callings. It's the highest of callings. 
He's saying we don't simply work for our boss's approval or for our teacher's approval, our parents' approval, our spouse's approval, or Instagram's approval. Our work finds its ultimate value because God sees it. Because God says to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, the Bible begins with this provocative invitation which is why we start there for our series. It's an invitation for you and for me to rethink our work. God has not created us merely to be consumers of his creation, but to be contributors in his ongoing work of creation and recreation. Our work has meaning because we were created in the image of God. We have been called to care for and to cultivate his creation. And when we do the work that we have been called to do, our work becomes worship because we reflect the glory, the image of the God who made us. That's a pretty high calling. How much must God think of you to esteem you in that way. How much must God value the work you do to call you to such a high calling? How much must God love you to choose you as his partner in co-creating his world? Well, there's a lot more for us to explore on this, and we are just getting started. But for today, I simply want to give you these questions to reflect. Would you ask yourself these three questions, and then we're going to pray. Band, you guys can come on up stage. What work has God called you to do in his creation? What garden has he placed you in? to cultivate, and to care for. How might you worship God through your work this week? I want us to close by praying this prayer together. This is from Psalm 90, and I'm going to invite you to pray this out loud with me. As we close, would you pray this with me? Praying, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Father, we thank you that you are a God who works. That as your son Jesus said, you are still working just as he is still working and you have invited us into that work in your world. Father, thank you for esteeming us and valuing us, of loving us enough to give us passions and gifts and abilities and minds and hearts and muscles and bodies and time and resources and talents and all that you've given us for this calling to work that you've called us to. Lord, however big or small our work may be, however seen or unseen it may be this week, could we discover what it means to work for you and not for the eyes of men? And for every act of work this week, 
to be an act of worship. That's our prayer. God, would you redeem our work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.